to Season 3 of Royals, Rebels, and Romantics. This season will feature more peeking behind the scenes, pushing back at assumptions, and listening to the voices of the past. We'll have fun and fascinating guests and welcome your involvement in what we chat about. It's all part of Shaking Up History. We start with a focus on our favorite birthday girl, Queen Elizabeth I. All month, we'll consider this multifaceted woman who went from being baby heir to discarded daughter and from being suspected sister to Queen of England. Enjoy our journey through Elizabeth's England. Hello and welcome to our final episode in Elizabeth I's birthday month celebration. Of course, we'll still be talking more about her, but for this final birthday month episode, I wanted to share some news about an exciting new project. I can't tell you all the details, but I did want to let you know I'm working on something regarding the various suitors, the possible love, the romance for the royal Elizabeth I while she was princess and, of course, while she's queen. Now, we know, looking back, that she is the only regnant queen to spend her entire reign as a single woman. And we're familiar with her very carefully crafted image as the virgin queen. But could things have been different? Was there ever a real serious chance Elizabeth would marry and have children and fulfill what was expected by almost everybody in her time of a woman and especially a queen. So we don't really know exactly what Elizabeth I thought about marriage or motherhood. She made all kinds of contradictory statements at one point saying she preferred the single life. And then at other times saying, well, of course she would marry. She understood she needed to marry. That was one of her jobs as a monarch. And she understood that. So she saw that it was necessary for the continuance of the Tudor line and the stability of the monarchy. And yet at some point, she seemed to really personally, possibly prefer to stay single. So we don't really know. We know that's very complicated. We know there are a lot of contradictions. So let's look at a few times in this amazing woman's life where she was possibly right on the brink of a true royal romance. Now, of course, for a royal, romance is not the point. Monarchs didn't marry for love and neither did their daughters. So as the daughter of a king, she would not have been expected by tradition to find necessarily romance in marriage. However, her father was an exception because Henry VIII expected to be in love. He wanted to be in love. He wanted his marriage, and of course that became marriages, to bring him personal happiness rather than simply political gain. He wanted more than sons. He certainly wanted sons. That was an obsession. But he also wanted personal satisfaction, personal happiness, love from his marriages. And Edward IV, there's a little bit of that because Edward IV brings home a woman, Elizabeth Woodville, that he theoretically, according to some legends, fell in love with, love at first sight kind of thing. 
and he turned down the foreign alliances that were being planned for him so that he could marry this woman he had chosen himself. So there are some exceptions. Even so, daughters of kings, and that's what Elizabeth was right from the start, daughters of kings were expected to marry into other kingdoms most often in order to bring their fathers more wealth, to bring prestige to their father's kingdom, and to represent their fathers and their native country's interests in a foreign land, whatever country they might be married into. So this was certainly true of Elizabeth as an infant. When she was a baby, the path seemed pretty clear for her. She was the daughter of the king. At the moment when she was born and for the next couple of years, she was recognized as the heir. Now, she was expected to be replaced by a baby brother. Everyone thought Anne Boleyn would have a son. Henry thought so, Anne thought so, Anne's enemies hoped not, but that was the expectation. So nobody, even when Elizabeth was the king's only legitimate child because he cast off Mary, but no one expected her to grow up and be queen. They expected her to be the daughter of a king and to make these advantageous marriages. So Anne Boleyn was counting on having a son, and she certainly was in agreement that Elizabeth would marry into a foreign court. Anne was hoping it was France. After all, Anne Boleyn had spent her youth in France. She had been part of the court of Francois I, and she had later benefited from Francis I's support of the marriage between Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn. And so Anne was delighted at the hope that Elizabeth could marry into the family of Francis I and really continue. She realized her hold on Henry VIII might be wavering, and that could shore it up if there was this French marriage and this French alliance and a treaty and all of that. Elizabeth would be the pawn, sort of the part of that treaty. Now, In those early days, that particular treaty did not go through, but those early days when Elizabeth was the king's daughter, was acknowledged as legitimate, his legitimate daughter, that was in some ways the least complicated. The first two years of her life, two and a half, almost three years of her life, were the least complicated in terms of her status as a potential royal bride because there was no stain of illegitimacy. Of course, when Anne Boleyn fell from favor so dramatically and violently and catastrophically for her family and for Elizabeth, Elizabeth was declared illegitimate. So the king always acknowledged her as his daughter, even though Henry VIII had been heard supposedly to make a comment, Anne Boleyn might have slept with a hundred men. And certainly Anne Boleyn was accused of having this insatiable sexual appetite, but Henry never allowed for the possibility. He knew Elizabeth was his daughter, but now she's illegitimate. And it's more difficult to find her a worthy royal mate, because she's not seen perhaps by some of the courts as all that worthy because of that stain of illegitimacy. And so the possibility of marriage becomes more complicated from Elizabeth from the time she's just under three years old. 
Now, Henry VIII did make a couple of sort of half-hearted attempts to look at marriages for Elizabeth and for Mary, and none of those came through. And so when Henry VIII died in 1547, Elizabeth was a single young woman. Uh, Royal women were often married around her age. She was not quite 14 years old, was a very marriageable age, and that's how she entered into the reign of her brother, Edward VI. Now, uh, her next romantic episode um, is discussed just so amazingly and wonderfully by Dr. Elizabeth Norton, and that is in episode 25 of this podcast. So if you haven't already listened to that, 125, and also in Dr. Norton's book, The Temptation of Elizabeth Tudor, which is brilliant. But go ahead and listen, maybe stop right now and go back and listen to episode 125 when Dr. Norton talks about the depth and the complexities and the controversies and all of that relationship with Thomas Seymour, because it is a controversial, a complicated thing. But when he is Elizabeth's stepfather, and they are living in the household of Catherine Parr, Elizabeth's final stepmother, and the one she's very close to. So she moves in with her, and then Catherine Parr marries Thomas Seymour, and he moves in, and he is now head of household. He is in full control. No one can tell him what to do or what not to do. And so we have some very strange things happening with records of him bursting into Elizabeth's room before she's out of bed and coming at her in her bed. And he's not, he's only wearing his nightshirt. And sometimes Catherine Parr is with him. Is she participating? Is she realizing her presence might provide some kind of a barrier because she can't insist that he stop? We don't know. But what we do know that is Catherine Parr's pregnancy continues and progresses. She's not always able to physically be there when Thomas Seymour's with Elizabeth. Things come to some sort of a head and Elizabeth goes to live with somebody else. So Elizabeth is sent from Catherine Parr's household. Sadly, Catherine Parr has her baby but dies from the pregnancy, which was not that unusual, but still very sad. And so Thomas Seymour is a bachelor once more, and he definitely seems to have been interested in marrying Elizabeth, and she very well may have been potentially interested in him. Now, if, and I know, you know, we go back in history and we play what if kinds of games, but if Thomas Seymour had managed to gain the support of his brother in his desire to marry Elizabeth, because Edward Seymour was Lord Protector and he was making the decisions. But if Thomas had been able to gain his brother's support, or if Thomas Seymour had gained the support and favor of King Edward VI to marry Elizabeth, if that had been possible, he might have been able to do so. And that marriage would have represented a good match probably for both of them. After all, no one expected at this point Elizabeth to ever become queen. Edward was healthy. Edward was expected to get married and have children. And Elizabeth would continue to be a half-sister. She could marry into a foreign country. But on the other hand, there was a lot of appeal to being able to stay in England. And so if she'd been able to marry Thomas Seymour, she would have been able to stay in England at court, um, a very high, wealthy, noblewoman with royal blood, 
Um, Thomas Seymour was, of course, the king's uncle. So it really, in a lot of ways, would have been a great match. And Dr. Norton thinks this is the closest Elizabeth really came to marriage because if Thomas Seymour had gained permission, a lot of the complications that were later layered into potential marriages were not here at this point. But that what if did not happen. And instead, Thomas Seymour was accused of treason, was arrested, was tried, was found guilty, and his actions plunged Elizabeth also into suspicion. And her servants were sent to the tower, and she was interrogated very dramatically and with a lot of intent of finding her guilty of something treasonous against the king. And so, you know, if we look at Elizabeth by this point, she had seen a lot of stepmothers not come to very happy ever after endings. She knew the story of her mother, Catherine Parr. She'd been very close to Catherine Parr and she'd lost Catherine Parr well, there was the scandal, and then there was the, you know, the death in childbirth. And she had been in real danger because of Thomas Seymour and her closeness to him and the possibility of their marriage. So the idea of marriage was certainly complicated for Elizabeth at this point, and it would continue, of course, to be complicated. Now, in 1553, after Mary Tudor had managed to rally the people and overcome the attempts to place Lady Jane Grey on the throne, Mary entered London in this very big ceremony. She'd been proclaimed queen. She was going to come. She was going to take possession of the tower and free her Catholic supporters and all of that. And by her side was her half-sister Elizabeth, the two Tudor daughters of Henry VII, reclaiming the Tudor throne, saying it's going to be Tudors here, not Lady Jane Grey. So they come in together. These half-sisters are presenting this sort of united sisterly Tudor front. But that togetherness does not last. Um, For one thing, Elizabeth's very existence is the reason that Mary Tudor's life fell apart. It was Anne Boleyn who came on the scene and Henry VIII set aside his marriage to Catherine of Aragon and set Mary aside as a legitimate daughter and heir. And once Anne Boleyn got pregnant, everything kicked into high gear and Henry was tipped into action. And officially that marriage to Catherine of Aragon was declared null and void. And Mary became legally illegitimate because of Elizabeth. Now, after Anne Boleyn died, Mary does seem to have had some almost motherly feelings for Elizabeth. They spent time together. There are some lovely letters that Mary writes to Henry VIII about how Elizabeth is progressing, and you can feel some pride in Elizabeth in Mary. But as they grow up and as Mary takes the throne and she is establishing herself on the throne, and attempting to restore Catholicism to England, there's Elizabeth, who's younger, who's very popular, and who is the focus of Protestant rebellion, most um, obviously in the Wyatt Rebellion, where Wyatt is rebelling against not Mary herself so much as Mary's decision to marry Philip of Spain. And that was not a popular marriage 
in England, especially among Protestants, but there were some Catholics who weren't really sure about this relationship with Spain and were concerned about England becoming almost a satellite of Spain. So there were some problems with that, and Wyatt's rebellion was to install Elizabeth instead on the throne. And so Elizabeth, whether or not she was participating in any way, and there was never any proof found of that, but she was a figurehead of some of that Protestant rebellion. And so even though Elizabeth told Mary, well, I didn't mean to be a Protestant, I just was never brought up with Catholic teachings. And so Elizabeth did put on some attempt of attending Mass, although she complained when she had to do that. And and there was just this this sense of unity between the sisters um, sort of started to really quickly fall apart. And there was a suggestion among Mary's advisors, particularly the advisor she had who had been sent from Spain and the Habsburg Empire to marry Elizabeth off to a Catholic duke or a Catholic priest on the continent to remove Elizabeth from England, to put her in the position where her husband would be able to insist that she became a Catholic, and to eliminate that threat from Mary's court. And that did make good sense from a religious and from a political perspective. It would have made it easier for Mary to remove Elizabeth from the succession. She's over there. She's living somewhere else. Let's find someone else to take the throne in case Mary didn't have a child. Mary was definitely planning to have a child. But she also hesitated to force Elizabeth into this kind of a marriage. She knew it was better for her reputation, as popular as Elizabeth was, to have Elizabeth supporting her in England. Perhaps Elizabeth would come around and really become a Catholic and really become a serious supporter. And the notion of shipping her half-sister, this popular half-sister, off to a foreign land did carry some problems for Mary. And then there's also, in Elizabeth's case, still that stain of illegitimacy, which Catholic princes or dukes would want an illegitimate Protestant sort of cast off. And Mary had resolved her own legitimacy. Once she was queen, she had Parliament reinstate the validity of the marriage between Henry VIII and Catherine of Aragon. So Mary is now a legitimate daughter Well, that makes Elizabeth even more illegitimate. So now she's, Elizabeth has been declared illegitimate by her father, Henry VIII. Edward VI, again, reinforced that illegitimacy when he set aside both of his sisters to choose Lady Jane Grey. And here's Mary reinforcing Elizabeth's illegitimacy. So as time goes on, Mary decides not to send Elizabeth off to a Catholic marriage abroad. But it's becoming clear that Mary herself is not going to be able to have a child to succeed her and carry on her work. And Philip began to make his own plans. Now, you might think that Philip would be the last person who would want Elizabeth, this Protestant half-sister, to take the throne. But in fact, if it's not Elizabeth, the person probably next in line in most people's minds and in a lot of Catholic minds is Mary, Queen of Scots. And Mary, Queen of Scots, at the time toward the end of Mary I's reign, and it's about going to be time for maybe Elizabeth to become queen. Mary, Queen of Scots, is married to the Dauphin of France, the heir to the French throne. She is poised to become Queen of Scotland and Queen of France. And the last thing that Philip of Spain wants 
is that same woman to be Queen of England. Because if she has control of Scotland, France, and England, in other words, if France has control of Scotland and England, it does not look good for Spain. So Philip becomes an advocate for Elizabeth taking the throne and remaining unmarried because he has his own ideas about what should happen to Elizabeth. So we know that Mary dies in November of 1558, and Elizabeth is proclaimed queen. It happens fairly seamlessly. It's one of the quickest in terms of the death of one monarch and the proclamation of the next monarch, the death of Mary I. That same day, Elizabeth is proclaimed queen. That's one of the fastest, that is the fastest time it happens in the Tudor dynasty. And here we are. This woman we never thought would be queen is now queen. And within just a couple of days of Elizabeth taking the throne, Philip's ambassador, the Count of Feria, who is sort of Philip's eyes and ears in England, says something pretty profound in a letter to Philip, quote, everything depends upon the husband this woman may take. And so the notion of who will be the husband of Elizabeth, the next king of England, the head of the government? Who will it be that determines the religious policy and the foreign policy and the domestic policy and trade agreements? Now, Philip quite quickly throws his hat into the ring. We don't know if Philip really wanted to marry Elizabeth but he could see political value in doing so. He liked being king of England. This would give him a much greater chance because Elizabeth is only 25 when she comes to the throne, a much greater chance of being able to produce a child who would then unite England and Spain, forming this great Catholic coalition. He assumes that if Elizabeth marries him, she'll go ahead and become a Catholic. I mean, it it fits into his plan. So it's not clear personally how much, but it did fit into his plan. And Deferia, who's meeting with Elizabeth, and he knows her really well, and he's assuring Philip, oh, I know that if the country will approve of, if the council will approve of a foreign match, you are it. Deferia says, I have this plan. I'm going to say to Elizabeth, well, your sister, Mary, was married to a king. Surely you wouldn't want to settle for a commoner from your own country. You should have as great a husband as your sister, right? Of course, I'm paraphrasing. But that notion of appealing to Elizabeth's pride in the comparison between Elizabeth and her sister, Mary, not really a bad idea on Deferia's part. But in fact, there were many suitors. There were many foreign suitors. There were suitors at home. Elizabeth was this great bachelorette or great source of power and possible wealth. England's not in fantastic shape at the moment, but it's strategically important in these ongoing battles between France and Spain in particular, the Habsburg Empire as well and between Catholicism and Protestantism. England is a key player here, and so Elizabeth becomes very attractive. So although we don't know exactly how 
um, serious maybe Philip was or how seriously Elizabeth considered his proposal. She did consider it for a while, sort of long enough to get the peace treaty with France settled because, of course, when Elizabeth came to the throne, England is still at war with France on Spain's behalf. So she gets the peace with France settled, and then she very gently turns down Philip, sort of with, uh, um, we'll just be friends, and they sort of say to each other, we'll just be friends. Of course, we know that doesn't work. But for a while, England and Spain are sort of okay. Now, another foreign suitor is Eric of Sweden. He had pursued Elizabeth while he was prince, and she was princess or technically lady, before she came to the throne. And now he is king of Sweden, and she is queen of England, and he is pursuing her again. It's an interesting possibility because Eric of Sweden was one of the very few Protestants who were available to marry Elizabeth. Most of the foreign royals were Catholic. And so Eric of Sweden, as a Protestant, did have that going for him. However, there wasn't a lot else he was bringing to the table. His kingdom was not wealthy or powerful, and England was not going to gain much in terms of international support or wealth or some of the goals that the council had and that parliament had regarding a marriage. So um, the Protestantism was a card, but it wasn't really a big enough card. So Elizabeth she always tended to keep offers open as long as possible. Keep supposedly considering this proposal and maybe one over here and one over here and sort of keep everything in play as long as possible. But Eric of Sweden pushed a little too far. He said he would come to England in person to woo, to court Elizabeth. And she knew that was too much. If he came in person, it wouldn't be possible for her to just sort of carry on with the proposal and considering it. And and that would not work. If he made that effort to come to England, she would be more compelled to accept than she wanted to be. So she had to stop that from happening. So she wrote this letter. I'm going to read part of it to you um, to Eric of Sweden to say, thanks, but no thanks. Quote, most serene prince, our very dear cousin, a letter truly yours, both in the writing and the sentiment, was given to us the 30th of December by your very dear brother, the Duke of Finland. And while we perceive therefrom that the zeal and love of your mind toward us is not diminished, yet in part we are grieved that we cannot gratify your serene highness with the same kind of affection." And that indeed does not happen because we have any doubt of your love and honor, but as we have often testified both in words and writing, that we have never yet conceived a feeling of that kind of affection towards anyone. We therefore beg your serene highness again and again that you be pleased to set a limit to your love, that it be advanced not beyond the bounds of friendship for the present, nor disregard them in the future. I have always given both to your brother, who is certainly a mo most excellent prince and deservedly very dear to us, and to your ambassador, likewise, the same answer, with scarcely any variation of the words, that we do not conceive in our heart to take a husband 
but highly commend the single life and hope that your Serene Highness will not longer spend any time in waiting for us. So here we have that great phrase, we highly commend the single life. She commends married life in other places, but she seems to mean that single life here. And certainly this very, it's not you, it's me, I don't intend to get married kind of letter to keep Eric of Sweden in Sweden. And that does work. He doesn't come to England. Now, of course, most people at court, and quite frankly, in Europe, thought that a foreign marriage was probably off the table because the queen did have someone else in mind, and that was Robert Dudley. The handsome, charismatic, and always right there favorite of the queen. So her relationship with Dudley became the focus of a scandal that spread through the court and throughout Europe. As soon as she became queen, Elizabeth made Dudley her master of the horse. And that may not seem like a very glorious title, but she loved to ride. She went riding all the time. And the master of the horse would have to be with her. And he also had the only legal right to be constantly touching the queen. He's helping her onto her horse, off to her horse, onto her horse, off to her horse. And so even though that title, Mary Queen of Scots, later dismissed it as horse master, but Elizabeth's love of writing and that position that gave him so much contact and close contact with her was actually perfect. And they also danced together and there was a lot of touching there. So in many, many ways, Dudley had access that nobody else had. And so, okay, does that mean wedding bells? Well, no, because there's a problem. There are various problems to the Dudley marriage, but the biggest is his wife. Dudley had married Amy Robsart in 1550, and Edward VI had been a guest at the wedding. So this was a real wedding, and it was thought at the time to definitely be a love match. And then Robert Dudley was involved with his father, John Dudley, in the attempt to put Lady Jane Grey on the throne. And so he was thrown into the tower by Mary Tudor when she came to the throne. Not too long after, because of the Wyatt Rebellion, Elizabeth is also put in the tower. Now, there are lots of romantic stories of Elizabeth and Robert meeting in the tower and falling in love and spending all this time together. Actually, Both of them were considered potential traitors involved in plots to overthrow Mary. So it is unlikely they would have had the ability to ever get together. But it was a shared experience, having been sent to the tower in disgrace as a possible traitor with the thought that you may not come out alive. And yet both of them did. So that shared experience certainly could have provided a bond. And throughout the rest of Mary's reign, Robert Dudley is very supportive as of Elizabeth and is always there for her. So when she becomes queen, even though she famously said, a thousand eyes see all I do, there was a lot of speculation that she and Dudley were more than friends. So things came to a head in 1560, less than two years since she'd taken the throne, when Amy Dudley was found dead at a flight of, at the bottom of a flight of stairs. Um, she had head injuries and a broken neck. And it was especially scandalous. That was scandalous, but it was also scandalous that that day she had sent all her servants to the fair at Abingdon, and that meant no one was in the house with her. And that was so unusual. And there was a report that some of the servants wanted to stay, and she insisted they go. 
So everyone's gone and she falls down a flight of stairs or does she? So there's this huge inquest and it's found that the death was a result of, quote, misfortune and an accidental fall. So Dudley is cleared, but suspicion still surrounds them. And so the pragmatic thing for Elizabeth to do would have been to really distance herself from Dudley. And she does to some degree, but she just can't break up with him. And so there are a couple of times where she is um, in disguise in 1561. She disguised herself as a maid to watch Dudley shoot so she could just sneak out there and watch him. And then later, Lady de Clinton helped her disguise herself to meet with Dudley at his house for dinner. Now, Philip's spies found out about that one. And so the word was spreading. And Mary, Queen of Scots over in France, as the Queen of France was heard to say that, um, you know, Elizabeth wants to marry her horse master, having killed his wife to make room for her. And so it was quite a scandalous thing. Dudley was at court. There were other marriage offers. She wouldn't marry him, but he was sort of a spoiler in some of the other possibilities. And in 1575, Dudley made this huge effort, sort of a final large-scale proposal during the summer progress of 1575. The Queen came to Kenilworth, spent 19 days there. He had portraits commissioned of the two of them that were hung in pairs. He had pageants. He had water pageants. He had everything you can imagine. And the theme of some of these pageants and some of the um, entertainments was the benefits of marriage. And there was often a character who sort of was like Dudley and a character sort of like Elizabeth who ended up getting married. And it was very much a pro-marriage event. And one of the um, possible pageants sort of showed a Dudley-type character rescuing an Elizabeth-type character. Well, she put the kibosh on that and didn't let that even be performed. She does not want to be rescued. But ultimately, she leaves Kenilworth and is effectively saying, no, Dudley kind of moves on, gets together with Latisse Knowles, secretly marries Latisse Knowles, and the queen does find out and is furious, banishes Latisse forever from court, although Dudley is brought back. Now, as time goes on in 1579, there are new negotiations for what turns out to be sort of the final potential marriage, which is Francis, the Duke of Anjou, and Alcenon. Um, these titles shift as brothers die. These are the sons. There were actually three sons of Catherine de' Medici that were considered possible husbands for Queen Elizabeth. And this is the youngest. He's more than 20 years younger than the queen. And yet there seems to be some real possibility that this might happen. She seems to have been fond of him, calls him her frog. There's some speculation that the ballad Froggy Went According came from um, this relationship. Of course, there are other speculations about that ballad, but I thought I'd mention it. And he does come to England to court Elizabeth in person, and she allows that. Um, the politics are important, though, because he is Catholic, and he is heir to the French throne if his brother doesn't have a child, and his brother so far hasn't had a child. So he may be heir to the French throne, and that would again be an alliance 
where England would ally with a foreign country that might overtake. France was very strong at this time. It also um, was troubling for Spain and the Habsburg Empire, who were threatening that if that happened, they would not look kindly on it. Um, and and the council really felt like the benefits of a possible marriage, Elizabeth was thought, thought to be past childbearing years. And so if Francis comes over and he becomes king of England and then Elizabeth dies, but he's just right here being king of England, what will that mean? Will France just come on in? And so the uh, relationship is ended and he is sent away. And she writes a poem on Monsieur's departure that includes a little bit, I grieve and dare not show my discontent. I love and yet am forced to seem to hate. I do and dare not say I ever meant I seem stark mute, but inwardly do prate I am and not. I freeze and yet am burned since from myself another self I turned. And it goes on to lament his departure. So now we are, um, she's sort of realizing that as we get into the late 1570s and the 1580s, there are no more chances of marriage. And um, eventually even Dudley leaves her, not just for marriage, but even though he'd been right at her side in 1588 during the Tilbury speech, during the Armada um, event, uh, he unexpectedly, Robert Dudley unexpectedly died on the 4th of September, 1588, and Elizabeth was devastated by his death. And he'd written her a letter not long before his death, and she kept that letter by her bedside and wrote a note, his last letter in her own handwriting, and that um, was by her side right up until the time that she died. So this was a very sad moment um, where Elizabeth really is alone. And so this image we have of the Virgin Queen and Gloriana that Elizabeth takes with her, the rainbow portrait's a great example of that into the very final years and months of her reign she ultimately, despite the sadness she expresses when her frog leaves, and despite the real sadness we know she feels um, when Dudley died, she does achieve what she stated was her wish, that the memorials to Queen Elizabeth I say that, having reigned from 1558 to 1603, Queen Elizabeth I lived and died a virgin. So that is the end of the royal romances of the Virgin Queen. Thank you for being part of Season 3 of Royals, Rebels, and Romantics. I appreciate your joining us. Please consider subscribing, sharing with a friend, and leaving a rating. And we would love to welcome you to the Royals, Rebels, and Romantics patron family. I'm really looking forward to shaking up history with you.